We'll jump back into the book of Esther again. We're going to be in kind of the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So we're going to talk about this guy Mordecai a little bit more this morning. Um, we talked in week 1, <clears throat> we just, we, we used, and I don't, have an, I don't have a scale this week, but we just kind of talked about the absurdity scale in week 1. Um, just Xerxes' kingdom and he was trying to legislate, make legislation for women to respect men and he was throwing these incredibly lavish parties and um, he was getting furious that people wouldn't respect him and, and it was kind of a, a wild first chapter. We looked in chapter 2 and, and this was about two weeks ago. Uh, we, we talked about the lament and the grief that we experience in chapter 2 as we kind of see the, the, the kind of tragic end of, of Xerxes' kingdom or the tragic conclusion of Xerxes' kingdom where, where that leads. Um, Mordecai were introduced to these characters, Mordecai and Esther. They're kind of caught in between two worlds. Um, they're not our morality examples, right? They don't really kind of serve. A lot of times we want, just want to read morality out of the Old Testament. and They're not our morality examples. Um, what they do teach us, though, is, again, they, they kind of introduce us to this gospel of weakness, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not found in strength. It's not found in power. It's not found in, hey, let me show you how tough and how bad and how big I am. We understand the gospel is found in a Savior who identifies himself, whose crowning moment is his death on a cross. Probably the weakest moment, right? While people mock him and spit at him and laugh at him. And we say that is the moment of salvation, right? That is the moment where we look to. And and Esther, as we look at Mordecai and as we look at um, at Esther and kind of compare Esther to Xerxes, this, this small Jewish orphaned girl, right? Compared to this powerful Persian king. And we understand that Esther is really the main attraction of the story. She's really what the story's all about. And I want to talk a little bit more than this morning about this man, Mordecai. And so if you got the Bibles, let's go to 345. Um, and we're just going to jump right into it this morning. So we're going to start in verse 19. We'll read these last four verses of 19, then we're going to jump into chapter 3. I'm just going to jam them out. I'll let you guys take the morning off from our uh, typical round-robin reading. Um, <clears throat> so again, uh, chapter, 19, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, um, and this is a great name, I, this is how I pronounce it, Big Thana. Big Thana. That would have been a good name for the baby, huh, Isan? Big Thana? Yeah. Do you think that would have been a good name? <laughs> Big Thana. And Teresh, maybe, maybe there's a different pronouncing of Big Thana there. Um, and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate Xerxes. Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, 
The two officials were impaled on poles. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Uh, chapter 3. <clears throat> After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamathida, I think I said that right, the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than, um, than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And that lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So the first month, right, is when they, they kind of cast this lot, when they say, hey, when are we going to do this, right? They, in essence, they roll the dice. When are we going to do this um, execution of all the people? And so it's the first month that they roll the dice, and the dice say in the 12 months. So basically, they, there's about a year between the execution order and when the execution's actually supposed to happen. Okay, everybody with me on that? Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamathida, the Agite, enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with these people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in script of each province and in the language of each people of all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy kill and annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Now, a lot of things going on in this passage, right? 
couple things to point out, and then I just want to um, make a couple comments on this. Um, first, there is this great irony that the, the author is trying to, to talk because the king goes from danger, right? This plot to kill the king's life. It's found out by Mordecai. And the, the plot to kill his life is extinguished. And so the king goes from danger to safety, to protect it, right? Meanwhile, Mordecai kind of goes for and the Jews kind of go from safety, from protection to what? Danger, right? So there's this kind of irony that the, the author's setting up here as he begins to unveil the story. The second thing, and, and if you're me and you read the Bible and you're kind of, you get caught up on these little details, um, in, uh, in, verse, in verse 9, let a decree be issued to destroy them. I will give 10,000 talents of silver. About 750,000 pounds of silver. Now, this is an extraordinary amount, and they don't even know if this was possible. Part, huh? 375 tons? 375 tons. That's a lot of silver. Um, and so part of the, the thing is is what... And it kind of alludes to this too, where it says down in, um, in verse 13, um, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Part of the people's, uh, what the commentators would explain is that maybe what Haman is planning on is as he begins to kill and annihilate all of the Jews, he then takes what they have, right? And he uses that to basically bankroll what he's about to do. So there's all this discussion, but Haman and Xerxes, again, sometimes you kind of read Xerxes and he's just kind of this bumbling Persian king, but you really kind of see the sadistic side of Xerxes, right? The, 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 this just kind of nastiness, this kind of ruthlessness, this kind of aloofness for, for people, people for him. Oh, sure, 750,000 pounds. And again, we, we only have to think of, you know, 60, 70 years ago to when this actually happened in, in Germany and Poland and in World War II with Hitler, when the Jews were, this actually happens to the Jews, to see the extreme danger that they're in here, right? To see what's about to happen to the Jews, to kind of feel that tension of the narrative as the Jews, again, move from, from safety to danger as, more, as Xerxes moves from, um, from danger to safety, right? So you kind of have these things going on, but there is one real standing out point in this passage and these kind of two two passages that really kind of stands out to me and it's found you know at the at the end of chapter two when when Mordecai or I'm sorry at the beginning of chapter three when Mordecai refuses to kneel down or to pay honor to Haman right this is kind of the real turning point of the story because again this is what puts the Jews in danger is that is that Haman is so crazy that he says you know not only am I gonna just eliminate Mordecai Let's just wipe out the entire people, right? Like if Brian and I had, you know, a beef and I said, you know, I, I'm not just going to kill Brian. I'm going to make sure that every single living family member that is somehow blood connected to the Trevilias. See, I got that right this time, right? That is somehow, can, I'm going to snuff every single, and this is how enraged Haman is at this moment, right? He's going after every single person. Because Why? Mordecai won't bow to him, right? Because Mordecai says, no, nah, I'm not going to bow down to that guy. Now, um, <clears throat> this decision, 
I think of it as, a, as kind of a turning point for Mordecai. We talked two weeks ago about how Mordecai is really compromised. He's taken on this name, Mordecai, this son of Marduk, this, this pagan name honoring this, this um, Babylonian god. Um, but maybe, maybe this becomes this turning point for Mordecai as he's, he's made so many compromises in his life, right? And it's at this moment that he says, like, that's it. We're not going anymore down this road. Um, now, again, why does he decide not to kneel? A couple thoughts here. One, I've got to get used to this new, I've got to get used to this new remote. One, there's this little kind of commentary about the history between Mordecai and the Jews and kind of the tribe that Mordecai's from and the history of Haman, the Agai, and kind of where he's from. If someone's got a Bible, I, I, I want to look at all three of these passages. So if someone wants to help me by reading 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 9, if someone wants to pick up the Deuteronomy passage, and then if someone wants to read the Exodus passage, I want to read these narratives in reverse. Um, so if somebody wants to, again, turn to Samuel, I don't have the, the page number, but I'm sure you can do it. sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites? Amalekites. Amalekites, there we go. For what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites. Amalekites. Yep. And totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Taylor. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Canaanites, go away, leave the Amalekites, yeah. So Samuel gives King Saul, he says, hey, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go to war against these Amalekites, right? King Agag is, by the way, Agite right here, King Agag, right, is the king of the Amalekites. And he says, like, this people, we're done with them. Like, we're going we're gonna to totally destroy them. But what Saul does is he doesn't do that. He, again, spares the king, the, the Agite king, King Agag, right? He spares all the best stuff, and he kind of keeps it as plunder for himself. Okay, so you have this kind of narrative in Samuel 15. Well, again, 
Why would God make this command? Why does God say to Saul as this kind of kingdom of Israel begins to rise? Why would he give this command? So who's got Deuteronomy 25? Go for it. So one of the things that the Amalekites did is as the Egyptians were traveling through the desert, as they were kind of making their journey, their exodus from Egypt into the promised land, the Amalekites, and what we get here in Deuteronomy, the Amalekites are going behind, right? And they're just beginning to pick off everyone who is weak, right? Who, in in, in this kind of giant horde of an exodus crowd moving through the desert, who's lagging behind? What kind of people would be lagging behind? Old? Old? Who else? Children. Children. Who else? Women. Disabled. Disabled, right? Sick, right? All of the weak people, the Amalekites would just kind of come in and begin to kind of pick those people off, right? So when God gives us, he understands what these people are doing is, is they're just, their kingdom is built on preying on the weak, right? Uh, who's got that Exodus passage for us? So we're even going to kind of go deeper into the narrative. Right. So again, it starts in Exodus, and in Exodus 17, chapter 14, they had just crossed the Red Sea, right? So they're just kind of fresh out of Egypt, and these are the first people to come and oppose the Israelites as they've just kind of made their way out of Egypt, right? The Amalekites are kind of their first enemy. We typically think of of the Philistines as the great enemy of, of Israelites. The Amalekites are kind of the original enemy, right? Then in Deuteronomy, we get a little further explanation that some of the things the Amalekites were doing was they were kind of attacking the weak, the children, the elderly, the disabled. They would kind of come in from behind and pick off just who was ever weak, right? And then in Samuel, we get this picture where God says, okay, and I've established you in the promised land. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go to war against King Agag, right? And I want you to once and for all wipe this guy out because this, what they have done to my people, we're not going to deal with this anymore. So he goes to war against King Agag, but as we read in Samuel, he decides to let King Agag live and he begins to take the plunder of the sheep and the cows and all those sorts of things, right? So you have in this narrative, when you have, um, when you have Haman and you have Mordecai, right? We just think like, dude, what's these guys' deals, right? But you also have this incredible history that has that they would both be 
um, very deep in and traditional, right? They would understand that, you know, again, Saul was a Benjamite, right? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So was uh, Haman, right? And then, or I'm sorry, Mordecai, right? Mordecai was from this, this tribe of Benjamin. And, you know, again, uh, Haman, I always get these names confused. Haman was a, from, from Agag, from this king who was spared. He was an Amalekite. You have this great history. Maybe one of the reasons that uh, Mordecai says, I'm not bowing down to this guy, is because he understands who Haman was and what tribe Haman was from and what Haman's people had done to the Israelites. And he says, I don't want to bow down to that guy. So maybe that's a part of the reason that he says no. Maybe another part of the reason is that he doesn't get any reward. Now, one of the things about Persian kings is they were renowned, and we've talked about their brutality, their violence, their ruthlessness, right? We talked about how despicable and sadistic they were, but they were also known for their generosity for the way that they would reward and compensate people who would help them in the kingdom, right? Mordecai says, hey, king, your life is at danger. And he tells the queen, and the queen gives credit to, um, to Mordecai. She says, hey, Mordecai told me. We don't read anything in this passage about Mordecai being rewarded for this. This is very strange that this, he would not have received any reward. As a matter of fact, the next thing that you read after this is, sniff, is snuffed out, it begins chapter 3. I lost my, my passage here. Um, beginning of chapter 3, it says that um, after these events, King Xerxes honored who? Haman, right? So maybe in the midst of this, one of the things that happened is as Mordecai says, there's no reward, no compensation, um, no generosity towards him. And he sees that Mordecai, that Haman gets promoted Maybe there is this tension here that he's like, man, how has this happened? That I was the one who spared the king's life. And Haman seems to get honored and rewarded. The last thing that happens here that maybe why he doesn't bow is there's this consolation of power that's kind of interesting. And, and um, uh, a guy named Mike Cosper points this out in his book. I thought this was a really interesting point. In chapters one and two, you see Xerxes relying on advisors. He, he kind of would consult with people and say, hey, Queen Vashti won't bow down to me. What should we do? And all the advisors get together and they say, hey, you know what we should do? We should make an edict that all women will, it will be law that all women will have to respect men, right? So there's this, this kind of, um, he's relying on advisors for this kind of whole Queen Xerxes thing. Um, he's relying on advisors for um, uh, what to do with Vashti and, and, and how to do, what to do with the queen and then, you know, let's have a new queen. But in chapters 3 through 7, all of the power gets consolidated to one single person. And there's this political element to Mordecai's resistance. This kind of refusal of power, right, that's concentrated into one person, right? So maybe... At the beginning of, of Xerxes, or at the beginning of the story, you see kind of maybe more of a shared leadership. But then all of a sudden, power gets consolidated into one, into one person, to Haman. Everybody has to bow down to Haman, right? Everybody has to give him their allegiance. It's interesting because the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, is very clear on this is a, a very danger for, for, for the Israelites too. Saul, just previously, right? Israel chants. What do they chant? We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. And God says, 
I want to be your king. I want to be your leader. And the Israelites, but yeah, but everybody else has a king. We want a king. So God gives them Saul. Does Saul end up good or bad at the end? Right? How does his kingdom end up? It crumbles. It disintegrates. Right? And then King David comes up and King David, great king. But how does King David's kingdom end up? Right? Pretty poorly. Right? And then King Solomon comes up and King Solomon's got all this wealth and wisdom and power. How does King Solomon's kingdom end up? Pretty poorly, right? And, and then after that, the wheels just completely fall off the bus. But what's fascinated about this <clears throat> is that anytime power in the Old Testament gets consolidated into one position, right? It ends up as a complete mess, right? Jesus, when he, when he begins his ministry, doesn't just say, hey, everybody, right here, me, 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 me. What does he do? He goes and gets 12 disciples in whom he instills authority to, right? He says, boys, let's go, let's go do this thing together, right? And he begins to pass out and distribute that authority, and he begins to lead with his men around him. It's not just Jesus saying, hey, it's all me, it's all me, everybody look at me, I'm going to do it, right? When we worship God, we talk about the worship of God, one of the things that we worship is we don't just worship one person, we worship what's called the Trinity. We worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We understand that it's not just one, all the power isn't consolidated into one person. We understand that the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, loving and serving and giving themselves to one another, right? And so maybe Mordecai, there's this political dimension to Mordecai's resistance. There's this refusal of concentrated power into the hands of Haman. Again, Mordecai just refuses to bow. And, and whether it's this historical element, whether it's its economic element, whether it's this political element, we don't know. It's probably a little bit of all three. But it really begins to turn into a turning point for Mordecai, right? Cosper says it like this. I really like this quote out of Cosper's book. Um, he says, as compromised as he was, Mordecai had been pressured or pressed to a place where he could compromise no more. He awakened to his identity as a Jew and embraced it publicly as part of protest against the idolization of power. Here, he said, I can go no further. Now, as I thought about this teaching this week, and I've been kind of meditating it over the last couple uh, days and weeks, and, and this just word right here at the top, where he talks about his compromise, and just this kind of word compromise. And what I wanted to do this morning, and I felt the Lord just had kind of put this on my heart. I want to lead us, and we do this occasionally here as a church, I wanted to lead us in, in a meditation on just kind of this word compromise. And I hope that this will be a time for us just to take a few moments and do some of that interior work of really just kind of examining in our hearts the areas of compromise, right? The areas in which we've kind of settled. The areas in which we, maybe like Haman, have begun to bow down or kind of sit at the King Xerxes gate or, or kind of taken on the identity of, 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 of the pagan gods, Right? Mordecai's caught up in all this compromise at the beginning. I see here with Mordecai, I see this turning point where he says, I don't want to compromise anymore. I'm going to stand up, right? And this ends up, you know, again, this is at the cost of his life, right? 
And so he stands up, and, 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 but it's this moment where he says, I won't compromise anymore. So again, what I want to do is lead us in a time of meditation, uh, just kind of a guided group meditation. We've done this before. Um, and so we're going to do this kind of around this word compromise. Um, and so are you guys ready to do this? Are you guys with me on this? I think a lot of you are familiar with it. Some of it, you, it might be kind of more the first time. But again, as normal, just kind of get into a comfortable spot. Um, um, just, you know, if you want to turn your phone on silent, if, if that ends up distracting you or... Um, Just kind of take a take a moment <clears throat> to just relax for a second. And in these moments, just again take a moment to to just those deep breaths, those cleansing breaths where you just inhale deeply, exhale deeply. Do that eight times. And again, just as you're relaxing, just allow your body, just your shoulders to relax, your shoulders to drop. Um, Relax your torso, your neck. And as we enter this, I just want you to, to think about this word compromise. What images would come to mind as you think about compromise? James uses an an image of a wave being tossed back and forth. Is that what a compromised person looks like to you? Are there any feelings that you, you, you feel associated with, with that word compromise? What do you feel when you hear that word? Are you sad? Irritated? to bring you anxiety? I want you to bring to mind someone who you would say has just settled in their relationship with Christ. They're just stagnant. 
They've compromised in so many areas. They acknowledge God by name, but deny Him in their actions. Is that person you? going to spend a few minutes and we're going to examine some areas of our life. And we're going to ask God to show us where we might be compromising, where we might have settled, where we might have become too comfortable in the kingdom of Xerxes. Would you take a minute and say, God, would you speak to me and show me where I've compromised, where I've settled, where I've become comfortable? Perhaps for you, There is a spiritual element of compromise, of settling. That there is no longer an investment into a deeper relationship with Christ. You are a Christian by name, and you've lost your identity as a disciple. about the relational aspects in your life? There are people in, in your life whom you have just given up on. You find yourself saying about that person, well, that's just the way they are. Loving that person is simply accepting who they are, and it's not challenging them or calling them to a deeper level. You are not willing the best for that person. Have you been compromising in your relationships with other people? Is there a person whom you've given up on? We have an emotional aspect of, of us. And maybe anger outbursts are your norm. Maybe you find yourself drowning in anxiety. Maybe you feel depressed.
you've just settled into these emotions. You have not allowed Christ to renew and refresh you in profound and meaningful ways. Joy is not a marker of your life. There is a physical nature of who you are. The Bible says that we are a temple. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where God's very presence dwells. Often we settle into our bodies dissatisfied about particular traits, features, aspects, or frustrated with the physical nature of who we are. You might feel sluggish and slow, always dragging physically. Perhaps you're irritated by your ailments. Maybe you've just given up on the physical aspect of your being. And God, through His Spirit that resides within you, wants to empower you wants to bring new life into your body. And we've just completely ignored that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. You are meant to be on a mission in life. There is a missional aspect of who you are. Maybe you've compromised and just settled into a private Christianity, a private discipleship. And you've allowed culture, you've allowed your position at work, you've allowed your family, you've allowed those around you to dictate to you the appropriate ways to express your faith. God is calling you to boldness, to courage, and a new sense of mission in and amongst this world. You have a mind and there is a mental aspect to who you are. And maybe you find that your mind 
it wanders from wants and consumerism to fear and despair to anxiety and frustration you've compromised set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your hearts on things above for you died And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Spiritual, relational, emotional, physical, missional, and mental. God, where have I compromised? Where have I settled? Where have I given up? The greatest commandment as Jesus articulated it is to love your God with all, everything, 100%, zero compromise, all of your soul, heart, mind, body, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus teaches us to seek his kingdom first and foremost then all the little less and important things will be given to you abundantly. This morning is a time to pause and to do some interior work, to be reawakened to your identity as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus, a child of God and a vessel of the Holy Spirit. And there are areas in all of our lives in which we need to draw a line in the sand and say, I will go no farther. We're going to end with this exercise and I want you to think about that area that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that he's revealing to you, that you just can't get out of your mind. I want you to put your palms up on your lap. I want you to imagine that you're holding that in your hands. Whatever that is, whatever that area of compromise is, of settling, of giving up in your life, And you're holding it there and you see it. I want you to close your hands on that. And I want you to imagine that you're crushing it, almost grinding it to a dust. And you've said no more. 
I will go no farther. And as you reopen your hands, you receive the new life of Christ. You receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You receive the love of the Father in your hands. And it is the most precious, valuable gift you have ever been given. And maybe you want to do that one more time. Open your hands, close them, crush it, reopen your hands and receive. And as we finish, just take another moment, focus on your breathing, deep breaths. Breathe in the love of the Father. Breathe in the life of Christ. Breathe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Exhale the areas of compromise. The love, the power, and the life. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the power that's available in the spirit to live a life of victory. To stand up to all the areas that we have given in, that we have settled, that we have become compromised. To live the life that is found in the name of Jesus. God, for many of us, there's all these little areas that we've just drifted. Subtly, silently. And we need to be awakened to our identity as a disciple of Jesus and embrace it publicly as part of a protest against the ways of this world. Here, we say, we can go no further. Now, Lord, show us the next right thing to do. Show us where you want us to act upon what you've spoken to us this morning. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Okay. I think that'll do it for this morning. I had some questions, but I think we'll just jump into some music time. We'll do some Eucharist as well. Um, and the Eucharist just always becomes a time of pledging our allegiance once again to the power of Jesus, to the name of Jesus. Um, and so... Yeah.